please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And while you're turning there, let me say thank you uh, for your prayers as we, uh, as a pastoral staff, were at a conference this week in uh, Washington, D.C. We arrived home Monday night. And uh, it was a blessing to be together and a, a blessing to be instructed uh, for many, many hours. And uh, so we're thankful to the Lord for his uh, provision in allowing us to, to attend there. And uh, thank you for allowing us to be gone on that Sunday uh, so that we could uh, enjoy our, our time together. Hopefully things went well here. Um, and uh, the important thing would be if you, if you noticed we weren't here, that would be a a good thing, right? I guess because you carry on, carry on without us. So, so First Corinthians chapter six this morning, and we are finishing our series on the topic of homosexuality that we began uh, either the end of April or the beginning of May. And my hope is that this uh, sermon has helped equip us, just in, in, in even in some small regard, as we think through the issues that we're facing. Uh, today in our culture, and as this as this matter becomes more and more prevalent, and uh, so that's our that's been our, our, our hope and our prayer as we've gone through this series. Um, but this will be the final uh, final part of our series this morning, as we uh, as we look at First Corinthians chapter six verses nine to eleven. But let's begin and read verse. Um, let's begin to read verse one. Uh, we'll begin there, and we'll read down through verse eleven to understand the context of our passage this morning, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer together. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful to be gathered this morning and to open up the pages of Scripture in a day that has a total disregard for you and for your truth, because our hearts and minds have been awoken by the Spirit, we come this morning seeking and 
longing to hear truth from you, from your word. For this is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we understand that if we are to navigate this world as believers, that we need to know the truth. We need to know that you have spoken. We need to know uh, how it is that we are to live in a way that pleases you. So, Lord, as we come here this morning, let, let us not come regarding what is before us as the mere words of man, but let us be convinced that this is your word to us and that our lives must be rightly ordered according to it. So, Lord, give us the wisdom to, to hear and the grace to put it into practice. May you be honored by what we study and how we apply your word this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. When we began this series on the topic of homosexuality, one of the things I mentioned was the challenge uh, or the challenges that come with speaking to this issue. And one of the challenges, or, or two of the challenges, I should say, have to do with audience and tone. So anytime you're having a discussion about these matters in contemporary society, whether it's you're teaching on it or whether you're speaking to someone in the workplace, there's always an audience and there is usually a tone with which, you, uh, with which you engage. And so as you speak about it, you might use different tones when speaking to different people and that you'll have different points of discussion depending on the audience with whom you're speaking. And so when you preach a sermon series, you're you have you know, uh, the idea that there are different audiences that are, that are listening, and everybody has in their mind a different audience as, as they are listening. And so that's one of the challenges as we look at this particular matter and as we've looked at this particular matter over the last few weeks. I mentioned at the beginning uh, Kevin DeYoung's helpful explanation of this challenge when he, he says this. He says, if we are speaking to cultural elites who despise us and our beliefs, we want to be bold and courageous. If we are speaking to strugglers who fight against same-sex attraction, we want to be patient and sympathetic. If we are speaking to sufferers who have been mistreated by the church, we want to be winsome and humble. If we are speaking to shaky Christians who seem ready to compromise the faith for society's approval, we we want to be persuasive and persistent. If we're speaking to those who are living as the scriptures would not have them live, we want to be straightforward and earnest. If we are speaking to belligerent Christians who hate or fear persons who identify as gay or lesbian, we want to be clear and corrective. And I think that summary is helpful as we think about uh, to whom are we speaking and what tone should we use. Now, to this point, we have been dealing primarily with the ethical question of, is homosexuality a sin? And in answering that question, we unpacked Genesis 1 and 2, Matthew chapter 19, really Christ's response about marriage. We unpacked Romans chapter 1 in some detail. And I think we have achieved clarity on on this particular question, right? The Bible condemns any expression of sexuality or any sexual expression outside of the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. There is no other biblically acceptable position, no matter how many people try to argue differently. But if we end the discussion here, we do a disservice to those who may be struggling with same-sex attraction or may be tempted in this area of, of homosexuality. 
The discussion cannot end with ethics. It must move on toward ministry. So the question can't, under, can't end with, is homosexuality a sin? Okay, and it is, and we can't stop there. But we must move on then to, to talk about ministry. How do we help those who struggle in our midst with same-sex attraction or who are tempted toward pursuing a relationship of, of the homosexual sort? And so at this point in our series, we want to shift from ethics to ministry. And so then at this point, the, the audience changes and the tone changes, right? So the audience then is those who struggle with this sin or are tempted in this way. And the, the, the tone that we use or want to use should be one of patience and sympathy and a tone that is, that is hopeful but is nonetheless still true. Now you might be sitting there saying, well, come on, this is such a small minority of society, even a smaller minority within the church, should we really address this question of, of ministry toward people who struggle in this way? Well, I think if we're biblically literate, we know that this sin has been around since shortly after the fall, right? Genesis chapter 3, you have the fall. Genesis chapter 19, cities are destroyed because of the pursuit of homosexuality. And when we look at our passage today, we see that many are saved out of homosexual relationships, as Paul says, and such were some of you. And so we should expect that if this was the case, that, that even in our own ministry and in churches like ours, we should see people coming out of this lifestyle, coming to Christ, and, and seeking to follow Christ away from this lifestyle. Furthermore, I think the way our society is pushing this particular issue we're only going to see an increase of the kind of need for, for this ministry more and more. And so I want to help us and equip us to think about this concept of coming out of a homosexual lifestyle and what change looks like, and help us think this morning about how to move from this question of ethics to this pursuit of, of, of ministry. Now, the verses we're considering this morning are verses 9 through 11. But you'll notice that these verses are not an independent, con independent unit or, or their own context, right? Because if you look at verse 9, you notice it begins with the word or, showing that this is clearly in the middle of a discussion that's, that's already taking place. Right? These verses are found in the middle of a discussion about, of all things, lawsuits. And Paul's addressing these, these matters, right? So in chapter 6, Paul has been confronting the Corinthians, on their failure to resolve their disputes between them. And to their shame, they're taking one another to court and settling their disputes before unbelievers. Now, these were probably civil disputes over things like land and money, not criminal, not criminal matters. And Paul rebukes them because surely there's fellow believers within the church who could, could give wisdom and, and, and counsel on these matters to help bring a peaceable resolution. And Paul even says, but even if they can't, he seems to think that it would be better that they suffer wrong or are defrauded rather than harm the testimony of Christ before an unbelieving world. And at the conclusion of this discussion on lawsuits, we find our passage about homosexuality in verses 9 through 11. But if you're like me, you're probably asking the question, okay, what's the connection between lawsuits and homosexuality. 
Well, the connection is seen in a wordplay that exists between verses 8 and 9. And it's not picked up in our ESV translation, but it is picked up in, 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 in another translation. I'll highlight it in a minute. So, so if you would, just put your nose down in the scriptures for a minute, and I'll show you the wordplay that's existing here between verses 8 and 9. Okay, in verse 8, Paul says, But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now, in your mind, underline that word wrong. Then in verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, in your mind, underline that word unrighteous in verse 9. It has the same, the word unrighteous has the same root word as the word wrong in verse 8. So the NIV picks up on this wordplay in verses 8 and 9, and they say this. He says, Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? So in other words, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, Be careful, Corinthians, because the type of wrong that you are doing to each other is similar to the wrongs that keep people out of the kingdom of God. Right? The things you're doing are, are even especially picked up here in verse 10. Thieves and, and greedy and, and swindlers. And it's in this context that Paul includes the topic of homosexuality. Now, it's our purpose this morning to look at this reference in, in connection with homosexuality. And so what we're going to do is we're going to set the conversation of lawsuits aside and just zoom in on verses 9 to 11 as we address this topic of ministry to, to those struggling in this way. Now, we have two points to consider this morning. The first is this. There is a word of warning. And then secondly, there is a word of hope. Okay, a word of warning and a word of hope. So there's a word of warning to those who practice, among other things, homosexuality. So Paul begins that in verse 9 with these words. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And this expression, do you not know, is something of a rebuke because they do know, but the way that they're acting calls their, their current knowledge into question. Now, when Paul mentions the kingdom of God, he has the future coming millennial kingdom in mind. That when Christ returns to establish his kingdom, that those who practice unrighteousness will not find themselves having a place within the kingdom. What Paul says here is similar to, to what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Paul's saying the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. He's saying essentially the same thing that Jesus says to Nicodemus. Now this begs the question. If the unrighteous do not inherit the kingdom of God, then who does inherit the kingdom of God? After all, we are all, myself included, unrighteous. And if we're sensitive, we, we feel the weight of that unrighteousness daily. So are we all then exempt from inheriting the kingdom of God when Christ returns? But well, we need to understand what Paul is saying and what he is not saying. He is not saying that we must reach a point of perfection 
in order to enter the kingdom of God. Really, we see in chapter or verse 11 that the requirements for entering the kingdom are really being washed, sanctified, and justified. But even after our conversion, even after being washed, sanctified, and justified, we still continue to sin and could be described as being unrighteous. It's quite common for believers to sin, committing even the sins that are on this vice list, like sexual immorality and idolatry and greed. But what Paul is saying is that the believer does not make the practice of sinning, or these characteristics do not mark and define his life like they did prior to his coming to Christ. It's at this point that I think 1 John chapter 3 is especially helpful. So if you would, turn over to 1 John 3, and we'll note there's one expression that appears three times that I think brings clarity for us on this matter of, of who inherits the kingdom or not. First John chapter 3, and then begin with me by looking at verses 4 down through verse 10. John says this. And see if you can see in your mind which phrase appears three times. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now there's a phrase that appears three times in here. Did you notice what it was? Well, it's right there at the beginning of verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning. Then he says it again in verse 7. Whoever, or verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning. And then he says in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So it's not that, it's not that we don't sin after being converted. But the idea here is that these things become a consistent part of our life or they become a practice of our life. And no one who continually practices unrighteousness will find that they have an inheritance in the kingdom. So Paul's warning to the Corinthians is this. Be careful that your life is not marked by these things like greed and idolatry as you take one another to court and and do wrong to each other because those who habitually and continually practice these things give evidence of the fact that they were never genuinely converted in the first place. And so that's the warning that Paul gives to these believers. Now, he gets more specific here as he begins to define the specific sins that keep one out of the kingdom. And among the vices that are listed here in verse 9, there is this one. Men who practice homosexuality. 
Okay, this expression is a translation of two Greek words that are, that are translated in a number of ways by, by various translations. So our ESV says that people, don't who, people who don't inherit the kingdom are men who practice homosexuality. But the New American Standard says that, that those who don't inherit the kingdom are the effeminate or homosexuals, as they translate those two words. The NIV says men who have sex with men but perhaps the most vivid and descriptive translations of these words, and probably the most accurate translation of, of these words, is found in the Net Bible, that those who don't inherit the kingdom are passive homosexual partners and those who practicing homosexuality. Now, the important thing to note about this translation is what Paul's doing is he is, he is condemning all perversions, of, or all acts of, of homosexuality, not just certain perversions of homosexuality, right? So some would try to say, well, he's just, he's just forbidding rape or prostitution. But no, Paul's saying all, all homosexual relationships are, are to be condemned and will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? He's condemning all practices of homosexuality. And in this particular passage, he is assigning guilt to both parties involved in a homosexual relationship. And this is almost a... a, a, a almost a clear reference, or assuredly a clear reference to Leviticus chapter 18, where in Leviticus 18, the Mosaic law says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. And this is, all, this is, this is almost a, 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 assuredly a clear pickup from, from Leviticus 18 as Paul gives these, these words. Okay, so these individuals, Paul says, and those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I know I said that we are addressing, or that we're not addressing the ethical question, that we already addressed it, right? Is homosexuality a sin? And I know I said this sermon would be aimed at ministry toward those struggling with this sin, but yet here we find ourselves again, back to the ethical question of, is this a sin? And so you might be sitting there saying, you know, I struggle with same-sex attraction, so it's like, okay, I, I know. I know it's a sin, I know homosexuals do not inherit the kingdom of God, but you're not helping me. All right, so help me find freedom from this. Help me find deliverance from this rather than simply dealing with the ethical question. Well, that moves us on then, secondly, to the emphasis on ministry here, where we have a word of hope to those who practice homosexuality. Notice the first words of verse 11, and these are some of the most hope-filled words in all of scripture. Paul says, and such were some of you. Okay, clearly some in the Corinthian church had had lived a life marked by these vices in verses 9 and 10. Some were thieves, some were drunkards, some were adulterers, and yes, even some were practicing homosexuals. But the thrust of verse 11 is that they are no longer identified by these sins. Okay? Something remarkable and even, dare we say, supernatural happened to them to put them these activities in the, the were category. Now, as verse 11 continues, Paul mentions three things that happened to them. They were washed, they were sanctified, and they were justified. Now, our English translation 
does not pick up on the emphasis of verse 11, but the word but appears before each one of these words. So Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. Emphasizing the radical nature of what happened to them at their conversion. Now these three terms, washed, sanctified, and justified, are, are, are rich concepts here, and they have important implications for how we think about, about homosexuality and being saved out of this lifestyle. So let me just unpack these terms uh, briefly for us, okay? The word washed is, is really just another term for regeneration, okay? You remember Titus chapter 3 and verse 4 and 5, where Paul says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Then he says this, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So there in in, in Titus chapter 3, the idea of washing and regeneration are connected. And what's happening here in, in our passage is washing is really just replacing this word of regeneration. Okay? The terms are synonymous. Another term that's synonymous with regeneration is the one Jesus uses in John 3 to, to say you must be born again in order to see the kingdom. So that idea of, of regeneration or being washed or, or um, being born again, the, it, it's, it's all the same idea. Okay? At salvation... We are born again, or, or we go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, okay? The Spirit of God awakens our dead souls so that we are then alive in, in Christ. Now, this is, is a miracle, and, and it happens, and it's initiated by the grace of God. So when Nicodemus says, okay, well, well how is it possible for this to happen, or, you know, how is this so? And Jesus says, well... It's like the wind, okay? It blows wherever it wishes, and that's how the Spirit of God works. He sovereignly, in His grace, is awakening dead souls to the truth of the gospel. It's like the wind. Now, as a side note, and this is an important side note, but as a side note, one of the reasons that I don't think believers can lose their salvation, as some would teach, is because of this doctrine of regeneration, okay? How is it possible that, that, that someone who has been awakened from spiritual deadness by the Spirit of God can, of an act of their own free will, go back into deadness? Okay? The work of regeneration is a, is a miracle that happens in our heart, and, and we in and of ourselves cannot undo that miracle that has happened. But furthermore, one of the reasons I think that believers can and do change after conversion is because of the doctrine of regeneration. That, that we have become, in our hearts, in our inner man, a new creature. We have been given new life in Christ. And so it is inevitable then that we will progress in our sanctification. Will it be slow moving at times? I think we've definitely all experienced that. But because we are now alive spiritually, we will grow the grace and knowledge of our Lord. So that's the word washed, but the second word is the word sanctified. Now often when we speak of being sanctified or sanctification, we're referring to our growth 
in holiness. Okay, we refer to this sometimes as progressive sanctification because we're progressing in our holiness. But here the word is in the past tense. He says, you were sanctified. What Paul's emphasizing here is something that happened to them at conversion. Like, it, 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 it's already happened. They already were sanctified. And, and this concept is often referred to as either initial or, we might say, definitive sanctification. Because at salvation, or at our conversion, there was a definitive break from sin. Prior to our conversion, we're slaves to sin. We're controlled by sin. And then after salvation, or after definitive sanctification, there is a break that then enables us to grow in the grace and knowledge and, and walk in, in, in holiness. So sin's grip is gone. Sin's hold is gone. We're no longer slaves to sin. And this is because of the definitive break that happens in sanctification. Now, let me give a technical point here, but this is a very important technical point. Both the washing and the sanctification, or yeah, being sanctified, okay, the washing and the sanctification, both of them are experiential ideas. They are experiential, they are not positional. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it's not that we've just been given a new title or our position has changed. Or as if Paul's just using a metaphor, it's like you are dead and now it's like you are alive. No, this is something we have actually experienced in our inner man. We were actually dead. And by the grace of God through regeneration and sanctification, we now actually are alive and no longer slaves to sin. So they're not just concepts or, or we're regarded as alive. We actually are alive spiritually because of regeneration. Now, we'll come back to why that's important in a moment, but let's get to our third term, which is not experiential, it's positional. And that is the third term is justified. Okay, Paul says you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And here, justification is where God imputes the righteousness of Christ to our account because of our faith in the gospel. Okay? We're not inherently righteous, okay? we know that, but we're regarded as righteous or counted as righteous based on the merit of Christ because we've placed our faith in the gospel. Unlike the first two terms where we've experienced regeneration and sanctification, here this is a change in our position. We were guilty, now we are declared to be righteous. Now, what does all this have to do with the sin of homosexuality? Furthermore, what does this mean for ministry to those who are experiencing same-sex attraction or are practicing homosexuality? Well, based on this passage, I think we can note two implications that are helpful for us in thinking through ministry in this way. Implication number one is this. Change is expected for the genuine believer and homosexuality or the sin of homosexuality is no exception. 
Okay, let me say that again. Change is expected for the genuine believer, and the sin of homosexuality is no exception to this expectation. Now, I recognize that what I just said is not politically correct, but I think it is biblically correct. Right? If the Bible is our authority, as we started in our first study, then we cannot accept any argument suggesting the impossibility of change for same-sex attracted people. Okay? Because it's, it's so clear for us right here in this passage. And such were some of you. Paul does not say to the Corinthians, it's, it's possible for you or acceptable for you to have one foot still in Corinth and one foot in Christ. Okay? He says, this is what you were, this is what you are now. So there's not a hint of a deficient gospel in Paul's teaching. Furthermore, if we believe in the miracle of regeneration, as we've cited, and the definitive break that happens in sanctification, then we will believe that same-sex attracted people no longer have to submit to those desires because he has given them a new nature that enables them to become new in Christ. Now, there are some who say, and, and they say this out of legitimate concern, okay, that trying to change people has, has led to them struggling even more significantly or, or maybe in some cases even committing suicide. And I assume things like this have happened, but there are two things that people fail to consider. Number one, it's not as if the homosexual lifestyle is a, a healthy, danger-free lifestyle. Okay? Our culture attempts to paint homosexuality as a good thing, but the physical consequences are undeniable of the pursuit of this sin. So allowing someone to continue in this is, is, is not physically healthy, but more dangerous is the danger to that person's soul who practices homosexuality. Right? Paul says they will not inherit the kingdom. So the most loving thing that you can do or I can do is to tell the truth, but then lovingly walk the road with someone as they seek to come out of this lifestyle. Okay, so the first implication is that change is expected for the genuine believer, and there's no exceptions for certain sins. Okay, change is, is the expectation, and given the new nature, we should expect it. But secondly, we note this. Change for the same-sex attracted person means holiness and self-control, but might not mean a change to heterosexual desires or exclusive heterosexual desires. Okay, let me say that again. Change for the same-sex attracted person means holiness and self-control, but might not mean a change to exclusively heterosexual desires. Okay, the pursuit of the same-sex attractive person or the practicing homosexuality must first and foremost be holiness and self-control. Okay, this would mean not engaging any longer in the, in the acts of homosexuality and working to kill the desires that, that rage in, in, our, in our hearts. Okay? Now, what happens eventually with that person's desires may differ from person to person, 
but for all people seeking to be freed from this sin, the pursuit is holiness and self-control. Now, God in his grace may allow a person's desires to change from same-sex attraction to opposite-sex attraction, but that may not be the case for every individual. But regardless, the goal is holiness, not merely heterosexual desires. One man uh, recounts his journey of seeking to come out of this, this lifestyle, and he was meeting with a group of men who shared the same struggle. This would have been meeting with the same group of men uh, in, in, his, in his church. And on one occasion, a man shared a, a testimony of praise in this small group meeting. He was at the beach with his wife and kids, and in his words, he noticed a woman in a small bikini. And then after sharing that, the man sat back with a satisfied smile and the small group erupted in cheers and congratulations. Okay? Now, hopefully you're scratching your head going, I, I just don't think that's the goal. Okay? Right? So hopefully you see the issue with this. The goal is not to change same-sex lust into opposite-sex lust. Okay? That does nothing for us. Right? The goal is holiness and self-control. Whatever happens with the desires, whatever God does, the goal is holiness and to be sacrificing and killing those, those lusts. There's a helpful book. Uh, well, actually, let me back up and say that if this is the goal, that, that, that holiness and self-control is the goal, then this gives, a, I think, an amount of freedom to those who struggle with this sin. And uh, Denny Burke and Heath Lampert, in their book, Transforming Homosexuality, pick up on this, and they, they say this. They say, some who struggle with homosexual desires will have a good and appropriate desire for the kind of care and companionship that attends marriage. They will be aware of a desire for a kind of relational care, family, accountability, and, yes, sexual expression that comes with exclusively in a Christian marriage. They say this, there have been many people who have successively pursued this goal. Others, they say, will not experience this desire. They will be aware of a total, they will be aware of a total lack of desire for any kind of opposite sex companionship that is part and parcel of marriage. Such people, they say, have the biblical option of pursuing the high calling of Christian singleness and celibacy. Okay, so what a person's choice may be following their conversion and their pursuit of holiness may differ, but the pursuit of holiness is the same. Okay, we want to look like Christ in both our actions and in our, our controlling desires. Now, often the pushback goes something like this. How can you tell a same-sex attracted person who for the most part, most did nothing to cultivate these desires in their heart. And if they had the choice, they would rather be free from these desires. So how can you tell them that they're doomed to a life of unfulfilled desires? My response would be this. In no relationship is one's desires completely fulfilled. In marriage, there is always the temptation to fulfill sexual desires outside of the context of marriage. But those desires need to be controlled 
and, and killed? Or what would you tell a married man whose wife became paralyzed at age 30 and sexual intimacy was not a possibility? You would tell him he needs to pursue holiness and self-control. Or what about a single person who, in God's providence, has not been able to be married and, and does not see any hope in front of them at the moment? Well, what are they to do? Well, they're to fight sexual desires that wage war within their souls. And so you tell the same thing to a, a homosexual person or someone struggling with same-sex desires that they need to pursue holiness and self-control. Now, one of the reasons we give in to temptation is because we have a deficient view or a deficient theology of suffering. We don't believe we're supposed to suffer as believers. We think we're to have our best life now, and when we don't have it, we're disappointed. And so we even pursue sinful paths to get what we want because we think that we're not supposed to suffer and that this life is supposed to be for our enjoyment. But if we know anything from Scripture, it's this reality. That there will be suffering. That this world is not our home. We're just passing through. And often what suffering does is it increases our longing for the coming kingdom where all of these desires that are unmet now will be fulfilled in a perfect way when we are with Christ. And we're headed for a city whose builder and maker is God. But those who walk in righteousness are headed for this kingdom. And it would be a shame to sacrifice the bliss of this coming kingdom for a cheap and unfulfilling sexual pursuit in this life. And so for the person in this condition, as they pursue holiness, they fix their eyes on the coming kingdom. That's where real joy and real satisfaction will happen. Any joys and satisfactions in this side of life is just a, a taste of the glory that is to, to come. So whether we're same-sex attracted or opposite-sex attracted, the goal is the same. We pursue holiness and we pursue self-control because the consequences are too great and God's kingdom too wonderful to forfeit what will be ours when Christ returns. Now maybe a word to those struggling and a word to those who can help. A word to same-sex attracted people, those struggling with this particular temptation. Let your brothers and sisters in Christ help and serve you and minister to you and, and hold you accountable but don't, don't find your acceptance and identity in, in a lost world. Because it may make the pursuit in this life easier, but the consequences are, are too great to bear. So continue to fight, continue to struggle, and allow your brothers and sisters in Christ to come along, you in, along with you in this way. And for the church, for brothers and sisters in Christ seeking to help in this way, I think we need to, to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ with eyes wide open. Right? These things have always existed. In the church, people are going to come out of this lifestyle, 
and to think that they'll be tempted to, to want to go back in this lifestyle is no surprise. They are not second-class citizens. They don't always get to choose their proclivities to sin, just like you and I don't get to choose our proclivities to sin. And so we all come together in the pursuit of holiness, seeking to control our desires as we pursue the coming kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the clarity of your word so that as we seek to minister and serve you, we're not surprised by certain expressions of sin because we've seen through your word these things have always existed. And so you equip us as biblically faithful believers not to be surprised, but to, to really see the solution is the same no matter what the sin is. It's, it's the gospel. Christ forgives and he empowers and helps us with the means of grace, the preaching of the word, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in prayer to walk in obedience. Lord, if there are some in our midst who are tempted in this way, we would ask that you would give them grace, that you would give them boldness and humility to open up about their struggles, but please protect them from a world that would readily accept them, readily confirm their desires as being good, and in so doing, damn them to a life of judgment. So Lord, let us be faithful to, to honor you and serve you even in this culturally different, difficult moment, even though it's not politically correct. Lord, we want to be biblically faithful, courageous, loving, and gracious. So help us, we pray in Christ's name.